Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with our awesome sponsors, Najahi Events. More about them later. Today, I'm so glad I get such awesome guests and I've got such an incredible team around me to get fantastic guests on the show. But today on our podcast, we have somebody that's been to two places that most of us will never, ever go. One of them was the bottom of the ocean and the other one was space. Hear this out. Colonel Ron Garan is one of the world's most influential individuals, an iconic father of three, decorated NASA astronaut, fighter pilot and test pilot, a humanitarian and a social entrepreneur. As part of a select group of individuals who have been fortunate enough to see the world from space, Ron champions his orbital perspective message to improve life on Earth. Ron is celebrated not just for his research in space, but also his humanitarian contribution to life on Earth. He spent a 178 days in space. He's traveled more than 71 million miles during 2,842 orbits of our planet. Wow. Okay, he flew on both the US Space Shuttle and the Russian Soyuz spacecraft where he accomplished four spacewalks. Not only that, spacewalks too. Okay, Ron also spent 18 days at the bottom of the ocean as a research mission held in the world's only undersea research lab, Aquarius. Later on was assigned to the US Agency for International Development, leading the Unity Node project. The project's task was to develop a universal open source platform enabling humanitarian organizations to walk towards mutual goals. That this guy is absolutely amazing. I am so excited. I've got millions of questions and I know that some of the questions I ask, you're going to want to ask too. And you'll probably have more at the end of this too. So please, please welcome Colonel Ron Garan, cue the music! Well, it's not often that we get a chance to talk to a kind of super blooming hero, an astronaut, a fighter pilot. You've got everything going for you. You're a real life action man, aren't you? Ron Garant, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show this evening. Spencer, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, I know that you've got a podcast yourself and I know that you've been interviewed many times, so you're going to be completely au fait with this whole process. And so let's just, why don't we just, let's, let's roll. Let's not have any formalities around this. Let's just, just learn about each other and maybe you can share your story and really inspire the people to listen, listen to your content. But before we do, um, people here in the Middle East will be pleased to know that you came and you spent a bit of time here back in the 90s. I did. I did. Yeah. Back uh, in 90 and uh, 91. Uh, I was uh, in a, living in a tent city just uh, outside of Abu Dhabi uh, during operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm, um, and so it was a it was a different time. Uh, the world was a different place back then. Do you have fond memories of your time here? I do. I have I have lots of memories of the incredible hospitality of the folks uh, in the UAE. Um, the you know the the grandeur of Abu Dhabi and Dubai, and even even back then, I know it's uh, I know it's come a long way since then. But even back then, it was incredibly impressive. Um, and yeah, it was just it's just seemed like a, an oasis uh, in the middle of the desert, uh, uh, the UAE, and it was a, it was a wonderful place to be for. Uh, I was here about uh, seven months. Now, 
You are extremely well known for being an astronaut, a man that's flown in the space shuttle. You've been to the space station and spent time there. And I was going to ask a question, and I really thought about this today when I was talking to other people about you. I was going to ask a question about describing what it's like. But there's one place I've been to in my life when somebody said to me, what's it like? And I couldn't describe it. I couldn't find the vocabulary and the words. And, And believe it or not, it was the country of Nigeria. And I just couldn't describe to people. All I kept saying was, you just have to go see it for yourself. Do you think you've ever done justice ever trying to describe what it's really like up in space? No, I've tried. I mean, actually, I've devoted my life since I left NASA back in uh, 2013 to figuratively and at times literally take people to a higher vantage point, uh, a vantage point that's afforded by uh, seeing the planet from space. But in all those, all those many things that I've done over, over these years, uh, they've all f- fallen short um, because uh, at, at some level, there are no words to describe um, the beauty, the, the, the interconnectedness, the interdependencies. Um, you know, when you see the planet from space, it's, it's as if you're looking at a living, breathing organism. Um, and you really get this sense that you know, we've been given this tremendous gift uh, that to be a part of this this ecosystem known as Earth. And, you know, it's funny because uh, I think part of the reason why it was such a unique experience, um, besides the fact that it's incredibly rare, that not many people have had that experience, but I think it's also because I was outside of the beauty that I was seeing like if you if you're in a beautiful landscape somewhere you know you're at the rim of the Grand Canyon or you're you know wherever just imagine the most beautiful thing that you can imagine on Earth uh, and you're there looking at that scene gravity is pushing you down into that scene you are within the frame of the masterpiece right of that painting uh, you're part of it but when I was in space I was physically detached I was removed from the beauty that I was seeing. And I was remo- removed from the only world I had ever known since the moment of my birth. And uh, that, was, that was really um, all encompassing. And, you know, I, I had this sense of just being, you know, this overwhelming beauty, right? But I also, uh, at the same time, had this, you know, sobering contradiction of, yeah, this is really, really beautiful, but life is not always as beautiful as it looks, uh, you know, life on the ground is not always as beautiful as it looks from space. And we flew over, you know, incredible uh, parts of the, you know, you talked about Nigeria. I spent a lot of time in Rwanda, you know, strikingly beautiful Rwanda, you know, on the ground, whether you're on the ground or in space, it's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. But I, you know, I would look down at Rwanda from space and think, wow, there's, there's, you know, millions of people down there that are living on less than a dollar a day. They're eking out an existence. They're, they don't know where their next meal is coming from. You know, if they get, you know, a minor illness, they could die from it because they don't have medical, you know, access to medical care like we, like we take, you know, for granted uh, in, in more developed nations. And, you know, it, it really, I mean, it was a punch in the gut. It was a punch in the gut and a refusal to accept the status quo on our planet. From space, we look absolutely ridiculous that, you know, all of the things that we fight and quarrel over, all those things that divide us, it, they just seem so, so ridiculous from space. And, you know, you've got this sense of injustice, this sense of, of this sobering contradiction be, between the beauty and the unfortunate realities of life on our planet. 
But you also, or I, also, I, I got this sense that it, it really doesn't have to be this way. It is within our power to, to fix the things that are broken. Uh, and things are not as intractable as they seem. You know, poverty, for instance, you know, people say, oh, we, we've always had the poor, we will, we, will always, we will always have the poor. I don't believe that, not for a second. I think it's well within our capabilities to lift the entire population of the earth out of, out of destitute poverty. We just need the, the will to act. I think that you have been given lessons and experiences in your life that may seem for most people literally out of this world and maybe unachievable, unattainable. I mean, for goodness sake, going to space and all that kind of stuff. So does, do you think it gives you a different perspective on problems on the ground that maybe most other people don't don't have that same perspective? Most other people see things much bigger than you do because of what you've experienced in your life? No, I, I don't believe that for a second. Um, I, I do think that I ha I've had a very unique experience. I wanted to share, you know, whenever you have a unique experience, uh, or I, I'd say when most people have a unique experience, you know, they, there's this desire to share it with people, right? Any, any beautiful experience, any unique experience is so much deeper and richer if you're able to share it with people. So like I said, every, ever since leaving uh, NASA in 2013, I've tried to share in every way I can. And part of that sharing is through writing uh, books. Um, and so my first book is, the or is called The Orbital Perspective. The subtitle is Lessons in Seeing the Big Picture from a Journey of 71 Million Miles. And one of the main tenets of the book is that you don't have to be in orbit to have the orbital perspective. That, and, and in the book, I include the stories of many people who had never been to space, but have this big picture perspective, this, this, uh, this uh, imbued knowledge that we're all in this together. That's not a cliche. It's, it's literally the reality of, of the world that we live in, that each and every one of us is riding through the universe together on this spaceship that we call Earth. There's, we only have one boat and we're, <laughs> and we're on it. And uh, we need to take care of our ship, mind our ship, and we need to take care of our, our fellow crewmates. And I think there's, there's many, many, many people around the world that, that understand that and on a really, really deep level. And it doesn't require going to space to, to have that. Going, what, what going to space does do is it makes all of those truths undeniable. It makes them very, very powerful, very tangible, and undeniable. And, you know, every astronaut that has ever been to space or cosmonaut or anybody who's flown to space, you know, in, in one degree or another, you know, relates this feeling of unity of, of you know, you don't, you don't normally see borders from space, you know, that, that two-dimensional colored map that hangs in classrooms around the world uh, is not the true reality of our world. The true reality of the world uh, we saw for the first time in the image of Earthrise on December 24th, 1968 when the crew of Apollo 8 took that famous photograph and we saw with our own eyes uh, the reality of the world that we live in. Okay, let's go back. You're six, seven, eight, ten 10 years old. You're a kid, okay? What was your dream? What did you want to be? So I wanted to be an astronaut since July 20th, 1969. So yeah, as a 7-year-old as a boy, um, you know, I, along with millions and millions of people all around the world, watch those first footsteps on, on the moon. And I, I wouldn't have been able to put it in these words at the time, but at some level I realized that we had just become a different species. We were a species no longer confined to our planet. And I, I wanted to be a, a part of that group of explorers that was able to step off our planet and, and look back 
upon ourselves. And, and I carried that dream of being an astronaut through, you know, my whole childhood. It was, it was funny, you know, people would, as, as, as grownups do, they would always ask, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would, you know, I would always say, I want to be an astronaut. And that would usually be followed by, you know, a pat on the head and, and, uh, well, what do you want? What do you want to be if you can't be that? What do you know? What's your? What, what do you really want to be? That <laughs> type of thing. So you know, I I started at a very young age experiencing folks that you know thought it was unrealistic to to try and do something so um, so so difficult to achieve. Um, what what did, what does the careers advisor at high school tell someone like you when you say you want to be an astronaut? What 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 did they did they think about alternatives that might work for you? Well, I don't know the answer to that because by the time I got to high school, I uh, that dream had disappeared, and and it disappeared for a number of reasons. I was, you know, a typical uh, teen, teen, you know, male teenager growing up in New York in the '70s, uh, where you know I got into my fair share of trouble, <laughs> and I wasn't the greatest student in the world, and uh, because I didn't, I didn't really care. I, I I got somewhat apathetic. There was, you know, we had some family issues going on at the time. It was a, it was a very difficult time for me personally, but also, you know, this was after the Skylab program had ended and it was before the space shuttle program had started. So for some, for, for some kid, you know, in New York, you know, back then we, it didn't make any sense to want to be an astronaut because we didn't have a space program. <laughs> and so it wasn't until I got to college, you know, I squeaked into a, <laughs> into a college. And it was funny when I got to college, I didn't know what I wanted to study. Uh, so I, so I studied business because I business economics, because I figured that that's a practical thing to do. If you don't know what you're doing, you know, business, that, that can't be a bad thing. But when I was a sophomore, the first space shuttle launched, um, Bob Crippen and John Young launched on space shuttle Columbia for the first time. And that dream, you know, was awakened inside of me big time. I realized we do have a space program. I remembered this long forgotten dream that I wanted to be an astronaut. And then I started on a path at that point to, to try and make that happen. And so you're a sophomore and so you start to think about what the steps you are that you have to take. And, and so if you were to lay out a blueprint for a 15 year old boy right now, what, 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 what would, let's imagine he was living in your time. What, what were the steps? Yeah, it wouldn't be my blueprint. I wouldn't, I would, I would say, do, look what I did and then do the opposite because, because I, I went on a very long, arduous, twisting, turning journey uh, to get to this point. So when I was a sophomore, uh, I already had all the, the core courses done for business economics. So I, so I went I, the next day, literally the next day after launching, uh, watching the, the space shuttle launch, I went into my academic advisor and I said, how do I start taking math and science courses for the rest of my electives? Uh, which I did. Uh, and when I graduated from, uh, from it was a, a, a state university in New York at Oneont in up, upstate New York. And I graduated with a business economics degree and I, I marched down to the local bank and I said, how much will you lend me as a student loan to continue my education? And the answer was, I went to a bunch of banks. Most of the answers was nothing, but I had one bank, I found one bank that would lend me $5,000. So I, I took my $5,000 and my, and I got into my busted old, busted up old, uh, a Fiat Spider with a, with you could see the, the the road going through the rusted floorboards and I drove to Florida from New York and enrolled in uh, Embry Riddle uh, Aeronautical University. And my goal was, or my plan was, I was going to stay there till I either got a, a bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering or I got accepted to the Air Force as a pilot, um, in a pilot slot. And uh, um, 
or I ran out of money, you know, whichever, whichever came first. And luckily I ran out of money at about the same time that I, get, I did get accepted into the Air Force as a, a, as a pilot. And so, um, but I never finished my degree. I never, I never got that engineering degree. And uh, uh, the story is probably longer than you want for your podcast, but uh, that, that, that led, on a, led me on a 15 year arduous journey that I capture uh, in, in my new book, Floating in Darkness. Um, but there was a lot of twists and turns and, and frankly, miracles that had to occur uh, for me to be able to fulfill that dream. During that period of time, did you have, you know, Daniel son in Karate Kid has Mr. Miyagi. Did you have a mentor? Was there someone that was kind of like um, a, a great guide or a, a great sage for you in your life during that period? I, yeah, I had uh, folks like that, that that came and went at different periods of my life. You know, part of being in the military is you're being transferred every couple of years to different places. So it's not, I wasn't in one place, uh, you know, for, for those years. Um, but yes, there were definitely uh, folks along the way, whether they were commanders or, or colleagues or, or, you know, friends that uh, encouraged me and, and um, helped and, and gave me really good advice and, and that. So. Were you... Were you always confident or did you doubt yourself a lot? Did you have a lot of fears? Did you find yourself sometimes talking yourself out of what could be possible? How, how, how was your mind around that, that kind yeah, of thing? It's interesting. The dream, you know, I said that started me on a journey, but the journey, the, the dream came and went. You know, I, I, I felt like I had a calling on July 20th, 1969, like a calling to become an astronaut. I had a, a calling again on April 12th is it yeah, April 12th 1980 what year is that I forget now the first first space shuttle launch that was the second calling uh but I had other callings uh, and but but it would it would keep vanishing right I would I, I would keep failing to answer the call right because of everything you, you mentioned you know the self self-doubt uh it's ridiculous to pr pursue an, an impossible dream there's no way I'll be successful uh, I'm not good enough I'm not smart enough uh, you know, all, all of these things would, would, would seep back in. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> there, there was a lot of, a lot of that along the way where, um, where I had to convince myself. And I think the, the light bulb came on though, when I, when I, I got to the top of the mountain, basically I got, I did everything I could, I thought I could possibly do being a fighter pilot. I, you know, I had fought in combat. I went to the, to the, uh, uh, U.S. Air Force Weapons School, which is the Air Force's version of Top Gun sc School. I was selected to come back to be an instructor at Top Gun. And, and when my tour uh, as a Top Gun instructor, Air Force Weapons School instructor was coming to an end, I realized there's nowhere to go from here. There's no more, there's no more, you know, uh, there's no more levels of flying above <laughs> what I could do. And then I said, well, wait a minute. Yeah, there is. <laughs> there is, you know, I could leave the atmosphere. I could be, I remember that, remember you wanted to be an astronaut way back when? And so I, I started down that path. And what the light bulb that came on was, although I never expected to be successful, I, I imagined myself in the, in the twilight years, you know, at the, at the, you know, the, the end of my life, when I'm nearing the end of my life, right? And looking back over my life and wondering what would have happened if I gave it my all, if I, if I really, really set out and tried to, be, to achieve the dream of becoming an astronaut and flying in space. And I, I imagine this miserable old man <laughs> that, <laughs> that you know, was so mad at me at the time for not pursuing that. And I didn't want to be that, that miserable old man. I, 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 so I never expected to be successful. I just 
I wanted to, at the, at the twilight years of my life, I wanted to be able to look back and say, yeah, I didn't become an astronaut, but I did everything that was within my control to become one. And it just didn't work out. And I'm content with that, you know, so, but it worked out. So, and, and there's, so, a lot of luck, there's a lot of luck involved. Yeah. yeah. And, and do, do you, do you, to get into the, the, the programs to become an astronaut, is, was that you hustling or was that, was that you waiting to be invited? How did it work? No, they, they, every, uh, periodically, um, you know, every two to four to six years, they'll, NASA will put out a, a call for applications. Uh, and it took, when I, when I made the decision, okay, I'm going to give everything I can to becoming an astronaut, you know, put the blinders on. This is my, this is my singular goal. Uh, there was probably two or three, uh, there was at least two, probably, you know, probably about three of those calls for applications that went that I wasn't qualified yet. So I had to, I had to take a whole bunch of steps along the way. And, and a whole bunch of miracles had to happen along the way for me to even put uh, an application in. So, uh, you know, once I, once I achieved that and I was able to put an application in, uh, you know, that, that really started the process in, in earnest. And so then when, I mean, obviously there must've been many people applying as well. So you weren't, you know, one of one, you were one of many, you, you, get, you get chosen, you get selected. Tell me how that felt. What did it feel like to be, you know, that moment where you know they've actually just selected you? Yeah, that, that well, I mean, there, I think there were two spectacular moments. The first moment was when I got called to come down to the Johnson Space Center uh, and interview for, for the job. Because then I knew I have just, I have achieved everything, all those miracles that need to happen, all those hurdles I had to jump over. I've, I've, I've achieved all that. Now, it's it's just up to the to the process, you know. It's it, it's happened, I, and that was that was really wonderful. And that was in September of 1999. Uh, you know, I got the call to come down, and, I, and it was it's a whole it's a week long interview. I mean, it's me medical exams, psychological exams. There's claustrophobia tests. There's you know meeting with astronauts and flight controllers and flight directors. It's, um, you know, there's a lot, there's social things where they want to see you in a social setting. There's and then there's obviously the the interview itself. Um, but so it wasn't until July 20th, 2000, that we got the call. So, so what NASA will do is, you know, thousands and thousands of people apply to, for, the, for each class. Um, and, the, you know, every year it changes on how many, or every selection, it changes on how many people they select. In my particular case, I don't know how many there were, but there were thousands, thousands of qualified applicants applying, and they end up picking uh, 17, 17 of us. Um, and that's actually a fairly large class. We've had, uh, I think the last class, they had like 12,000 or 15,000 qualified applicants and they picked six. Um, so the odds are, are not in your wow. favor. But on July 20th, uh, 2000, on the anniversary of the first calling, on, um, you know, of the first moon landing, I got the call from the, from the chief of the astronaut office. Um, well, I got, I, I got a voicemail. So I, I, and it basically said, hey, you know, this is the chief of the astronaut office, Charlie Precourt, you know, you know, can you give us a call back at your earliest convenience? So I call, I call him back. And after, you know, a little bit of um, uh, small talk, uh, he says, hey, you know, uh, we're, we'd like to offer you a, a job to come in and fly with us if you're still interested. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I fought the, I fought the urge to, to, you know, yell and scream and holler. And I said, well, I, I really, really appreciate that. And I, I accept, I accept your offer and, you know, thank you for the honor and the privilege. And, and uh, you know, the, the phone call probably didn't last more than three minutes, but that was the, 
the most impactful three minutes probably of my life where my life took a, a where, huge where were you in that moment were you at home at work where were you i was at work i was at work, was at work. Yeah. and so and actually there, that itself that that day is a is a whole long story too that i capture in the in the book in the new book floating in darkness because it really was an amazing day um um who was the first person you told my wife and so basically so so I was at work. I was a test pilot at the time at, at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. And, you know, there's a whole test. Test pilots are from, you know, they, the astronaut um, corps for pilots. I, I was I applied to be a shuttle pilot. That group is picked from the various uh, test pilot school uh, or test test pilot school graduates, but test pilots um, that are in the Navy and the Air Force and, and the other services. And so the buzz on base was the calls are going out. Right. And um, so I left the squadron as soon as I as soon as I got the call, I left the squadron, because the other thing that the chief of the astronaut office said is uh, and you can't tell anybody you can't you can tell your family, your immediate family, but you can't tell anybody else because we have to wait to, to the members of Congress of each of the states of the selectees is in for, you know, uh, um, uh, formally informed that they have their state just got a new astronaut, right? And so I didn't want to have to keep a, a poker face when people would, you know, undoubtedly come up to me and ask me if I got the call. So I left the, I left, immediately left the, uh, the squadron. I drove home and I, I wanted my wife to be the first that I told and I wanted to tell her in person, uh, face to face. And because, you know, we were in this together uh, and she was my rock um, th through some really, really hard times uh, in the pursuit of that, that goal and so uh, i wanted her to be the first to hear and what was what was your wife's reaction she obviously she's lived with you and so you've been who you are all your life so she kind of knows you anyway but was she was she overjoyed for you but internally was she maybe concerned um no i don't think she was concerned uh she's pretty tough and she's been through me flying in combat with her pregnant with twins and all kinds of other stuff and <laughs> i think she probably thought and i was a test pilot at the time so i think she probably thought this is a decrease in the danger <laughs> of, of what because i mean there's a difference between flying in space once every you know three to ten years uh versus flying every day in in really risky things and so I don't think that part of it uh, came into the equation. If anything, it was a reduction in, in, in risk overall. Um, of course, all that risk is focused into a very small amount of time in the astronaut corps. Um, but it was it was it was joy. I mean, she had been along on this in, on this journey, and um, we we all made sacrifices uh, along the way. And uh, it's good if when those sacrifices pay off and that hard work pays off. And like I said, it wasn't just me. It was you know. The whole family pitching in to, to to make it happen. And do you get when you when you join the program? Do you get a massive pay rise? No, <laughs> no I was a, I was a, a, at the, when I got selected. I was a lieutenant colonel in the uh, Air Force, and uh, that's and I was a lieutenant colonel at NASA too until I got I get did get promoted to full colonel. Um, uh, and you know you're just you're on loan from the military to NASA. Uh, eventually, I transitioned to to being a civil servant. Um, so, so uh, you know, a civilian astronaut, um, uh, but it's the the, the the pay is the same. <laughs> okay, so the only, so, the only difference is is where the check comes from, <laughs> which part of the government. And so, you you were living in Florida. I was living in Florida when I got uh, the call to to come, and so you know, three you know, three weeks later, we we're packing up our our 
our cars and our house and moving to, moving to Houston, Texas. Okay, and that's where you live from there. Okay, so you go into it, you go through your training, you've had this fantastic news, and you, 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 the, obviously the training is some of the stuff you'll have experienced, but most of it is all new and exciting stuff to you. How tough was the training compared to what you'd learned over the years in your previous experiences with flying a fighter jet, et cetera? Yeah, I, I think the training was really, really uh, difficult from a, from an academic point of view. I think it was there, because the, the space shuttle, uh, primarily we just started studying the, the space shuttle. That was the first uh, real push. And then and then eventually we started uh, also studying the space station and then the Soyuz. And so, so basically it was about a little over a year of basic training. And in that basic training, you, you get all the basics of, of how to fly the, the space shuttle, uh, just an, uh, more or less an overview of the space station. Now, when I was there, the space station was in the early phases of construction when we when we showed up, um, and so uh, there was actually a lot of those courses weren't even built yet that that we would need. Um, but after that year was over and we were basically officially astronauts now, uh, not really. You're not really officially an astronaut until you've flown to space. But according to NASA, um, we were we were assignable. We were at that point we we were able to be assigned. Uh, but none of us got assigned for like seven years after that because a couple of years after that we had Columbia. We had the Columbia mishap, um, and that you know shut us down for three years as we had had the return to flight effort. And you know first of all the mishap investigation to figure out what happened and and then how to make sure that it doesn't happen again and then and then get back uh, flying again. But after the basic training. And then you have all specialized training, uh, spacewalking training, or robotic arm training. You know all of the different specialized things that come. So, so I trained to fly in space for seven years before I ever strapped myself to a to a rocket with a, <laughs> with the intention to fly. And you went and you went to the bottom of the sea as well, yeah. I did. I, I, I lived for lived and worked for three weeks in Aquarius, the world's only undersea laboratory. Um, that was in two thousand and six. Uh, and that was that was an incredible experience as well. Um, it was up there. It was in the same league as flying in space because we were living uh, in a beautiful coral reef off the coast of Key Largo. And so, if if you've ever you know if you're a scuba diver, it, that's an incredible experience, right? But when you go to these beautiful coral reefs, you're a visitor. We became residents of the coral reef. We got to know the neighbors. The neighbors got to know us. It was. It really gave me an incredible appreciation for the gift of our oceans, for the for the vibrancy and the uh, interdependencies. Um, it, it's just such a complicated, complex, dense web of life on, under the sea that's veiled from our normal awareness because of the the churning top layer. But when we when we go into the depths of it, it's just uh, an incredible world down there. But it's not another world, right? It's the same world. Um, and uh, yeah, that was a, that was an amazing experience as well. Wow. So tell us then before we because I want to talk about your books as well and a few other things. Tell us a couple of things. Number number one, what's it like taking off for the first time? In a, in, in, a, in a rocket. In a, in, yeah, in a, yeah, in a rocket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I've taken off in airplanes too. So, but but you've probably you know, <laughs> most everybody's experienced that. Maybe not in a jet fighter, but. Um, yeah, the first time I launched was on Space Shuttle um, Discovery uh, in 2008. Uh, we brought up and installed the Japanese laboratory to the International Space Station. I had the, the great uh, opportunity to do three spacewalks on that mission as part of that construction. Uh, but you know, when you watch a Space Shuttle launch on TV or even in person, 
you know, the, the countdown goes to zero and you see, see all this white billowing, you know, steam or smoke coming out. And, you know, the, the space shuttle just kind of lumbers off the pad. And, and, you know, that's what it looks like. What it feels like on the inside is like you're on the end of a slingshot, a giant slingshot, and somebody just released it because you spring off the launch pad and you know you're going somewhere and you're going somewhere fast. And it's, it's just an incredible experience. And, you, you know, you start to accelerate and accelerate and accelerate. And eventually you're, you're accelerating and you have three G's, right? So, so you weigh three times as much, however much you weigh on earth, you weigh three times more now because you're being pushed into your seat by that force of acceleration. And I just remember thinking, you know, I've experienced acceleration in jets before uh, but nothing like this and nothing that has lasted as long as this. So it's basically eight and a half minutes from the time that you launch off the pad, to the time that the engine shut down and you're in orbit is right around eight and a half minutes. So for eight and a half minutes, you're being pushed back into your seat through the, you know, invisible hand of acceleration. And in my mind, just, you know, having flown jets for all these years and knowing, extrapolating that acceleration, I just knew that we were traveling at incredible speed. I mean, it, it's 17,500 miles an hour, about 25,000 kilometers per hour, but it's five miles a second. So, <laughs> so we're traveling at five miles a second, which is just, you know, it's hard to wrap your mind around that, that, that speed. Car, blimey. I mean, yeah, yes, it is. And so you go up into orbit. How long is it before you actually reach the space station when you fly? How long does it take to get there? It, de it depends. Uh, it took us about two and a half days. Uh, so, you know, we had to adjust our orbits and everything. When I launched the second time, the second time I launched on a, on a Russian Soyuz spacecraft. And on that mission, it also took about two and a half days. So for two and a half days, we were in this little capsule, you know, orbiting the Earth, which was an incredible experience. Uh, but they've changed the way they do it now. And uh, now it's just a matter of hours. They, they, um, they change the trajectory that they launch on and they and they uh, get up there a lot faster um so there, i mean there's lots of different ways that that you can do the orbital mechanics to, to do a, a rendezvous to the space station and, and you get to a space station and and would you describe it as the highest laboratory in the world would that be a, a fair way is it like being in a laboratory i don't mean like what we would know on the ground but are you doing lots of tests on lots of different stuff all the time um and if you are what type of what type of tests are you doing and what's kind of stuff really excited you yeah i mean the first thing to, to realize about the space station is it's enormous um, it is the size of a football field uh it is if it, weigh, if it was on the ground it'd weigh over a million pounds it's this massive massive complex of different modules and laboratories and no matter what vehicle you arrive in when you open up the hatch and go into the 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 space station it seems spacious right it's this gigantic thing and you know there's the u.s laboratories there's the european laboratory there's the uh the japanese laboratory but the purpose of the space station is to be an orbiting laboratory and experiments are conducted there that simply uh, can't be conducted anywhere on earth because of the microgravity environment and uh, some other aspects of the environment up there. And so there's all kinds of experiments going on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Um, and besides experiments to help us explore the rest of the solar system, uh, I'd say 99.9% .9 of all experiments are also helping 
improve life on earth. There's experiments to make new medicines, a better understanding of the human body, a better understanding of the processes, the environmental processes and agricultural processes on earth, ways to develop uh, new cleaner forms of energy. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. Um, and because it's such a unique environment, um, uh, in some cases, uh, results and answers to, to basic questions uh, come a lot faster because, because of that. Now you were up there for six months, is that correct? Six months, yeah. So six months, half a year of essentially working all day, every day for that period of time. You've got, you got exposed to experiments that on, on the earth, you obviously don't take place. Have you seen the results of some of those experiments and the differences that they've made on earth in any particular area? Is there anything that you can... I, I, I know that there was... Uh... I don't know, is it a vaccine or, or there, there was um, some vaccines developed for, for different uh, um, health-related issues uh, that, that, uh, that have been developed. I know that there's been major breakthroughs in, in, in the study of fluid mechanics, uh, which have profound uh, implications for things like, you know, uh, laboratory on a chip type things to, to, to go into, you know, rural or developing uh, parts of the, of the world that don't have access to big uh, medical labs. And you could have, you know, really quick diagnostics of, of diseases and things like that. Uh, there's been a lot of profound um, earth observation type uh, discoveries about some of the processes, especially around um, effects of global warming and, and things like that. Um, so yeah, there's been a, a, quite a bit of breakthroughs um, that have occurred because of the, the, exper the experiments on board. But a lot of that though, a lot of the, the science that's being conducted on the space station is, is basic science, right? And so if it's revolutionary, it's breakthrough, uh, but you're not gonna, it's it's several, several uh, degrees of separation removed from the, the product that uh, eventually gets developed from that breakthrough in the basic science. Um, like, you know, one of the big things there is protein crystal growth, right? And so what we do with protein crystal growth is we use that to validate the computer models that we use in the design of, med of medications and, and um, um, uh, vaccines and, and things like that. And so what that allows us to do is to improve because crystals grow so much uh, bigger and, and faster and uh, everything. It, it allows us to, to uh, validate those computer models faster and more accurately, which allows us to design the med medicines more accurately um, and powerfully. And so it's, it's several orders you know, or degrees of separation removed from the fact that this, this vaccine would not be possible had it not been for this protein crystal growth experiment. Um, so yeah, there's, we're, 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 it's gonna be decades, we're gonna be reaping the benefits of the space station's research for many, many decades to come. And when you're up there and you get a chance to, to, to look at the earth and admire its beauty, did it change how you felt about the way that we humanity was treating the earth? Did it change? Yeah, yeah of course. Does it, uh, make you, does it make you sad when, you know, whether we're looking at the greenhouse gases or whether we're looking at, you know, the, the global warming and stuff like that, does it make you sad when you're up there to think about the fact that we're doing this to our own planet and, and or does it, does it make you angry? Both. Okay. <laughs> I mean, like, like I said before, you know, we look absolutely ridiculous from space. Uh, we, the way we treat our planet, the way we treat each other, all the things that we think are so important that we fight over, 
all of that stuff looks absolutely ridiculous from space. So what is really obvious from space is that we're living a lie. <laughs> Part of what I mean by that is we've got this upside down view of how things work. We treat everything on our planet, including the very life support systems of our planet as the wholly owned subsidiary of the global economy. But that it's exactly the opposite. You know, our, our economy is dependent on society and, and society is dependent on and embedded in and part of the biosphere that we call earth. And so what that means is that everything, including the global economy is the wholly owned subsidiary of the biosphere. Um, and you know, you don't have to be in space to realize that we live on a planet of finite resources and we need to do something to reduce the rate at which we're using, non um, using up non-renewable resources and, and you know, pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and everything else. Every single person that, I've ever, that I know that has ever been to space says the same thing. You will not believe how thin the atmosphere is when you get there. And when I got, when I got to space for the first time, that was the big thing that hit me right away on the first day was, oh my goodness, look at the atmosphere. I can't believe how thin it is. And that's after seven years of hearing crew after crew after crew come back from space and all the first time flyers going, you're not gonna believe how thin the atmosphere is. And that's a really scary thing to see because you know when you look up at the sky from the ground, it's the big blue sky, it goes on forever. And when you go and you see it from space, it's this paper thin layer that's hugging the earth. And it looks like, a, you know, a little breeze can come and blow, blow it away. And that little paper thin layer keeps every living thing on the planet alive. Um, and so it, it, it's, it's very obvious that humans could, could fill that thing up quite easily. And we do. I remember seeing forest fires on the uh, sub-Saharan uh, African continent and seeing the smoke uh, engulfing the entire continent up to the limits of the atmosphere. I mean, it's, it's obvious we could do that. And that was forest fires in this case, but, but you can do the same thing with, with industrial pollution or, or whatever other means. You, you, do, do, do you think that the way that the world is run though, with our political leaders and stuff, do you think we'll ever get a handle on it? Or do you think it will, it will have to get into such a bad state, it almost to a massive crisis that nobody can avoid or hide from before we do what we need to do? You know, that, that's a really good question. And one of the several, one of the, one of the outcomes I hope from COVID-19 is that we, that nudges us in that direction because, you know, we are paying a horrible, terrible price with COVID-19 and we're going to pay that price regardless of whether or not we get a benefit from it. But we have an opportunity to get a benefit from, from the price that we're already paying. And that benefit is to come out the other side of COVID-19 stronger, more unified, more resilient, better equipped to deal with other crises that come at us because for the first time in human history, it is undeniable that we are facing an existential threat together. I mean, we, we have lots of other existential threats, but none of them as undeniable as COVID-19. Literally every person on the planet is affected in one way or another from COVID-19. And so now for the first time in history, this saying, we're all in this together, we're all in the same boat, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever cliche you want to use, is undeniably uh, true. And so this, this could be our wake-up call. This could be our call to action. You said, you know, do things have to get really bad? Things are really bad. Things are really terrible right now, and they're getting worse. And so, you know, are, are we going to make the right choice? I, I don't know, but we are at a pivotal point in, in human history right now. I think we are at the inflection point between two human epochs. 
the old human epoch was an it was a two-dimensional epoch founded on the two-dimensional us versus them mindset of competition and conquest and unrestricted growth and and ind and blind independence and and businesses that operate in a solely self-serving vacuum and and all of those things which brought us to this point they they have in some respects served us in the past they are, that mindset is no longer serving us. So I think we're at an inflection point for a new human epoch where blind independence is replaced with a profound understanding of, a, of our interdependence, where businesses are not seen as discrete entities operating in a self-serving vacuum, but they're seen as interdependent nodes in a fabric of prosperity where everyone has the opportunity to live a good life in harmony with each other and in harmony with the planet, where businesses are, exist first and foremost to serve the needs of civilization and society, not the, other, not the other way around. So we've got everything backwards, right? We need to flip it. And so we're at this pivotal point. And, you know, biological systems have a, a, a normal population curve, right? A, an S curve where the population starts out really, really flat for, for a very, very long time. And then it takes off exponentially. And then one of two things happen. Either it reaches an equilibrium point and flourishes at, at, a, at a good equilibrium, or it comes crashing back down. So we are right at that inflection point right now. And I like to think that the inflection point came on December 24th, 1968, the day that we took that, that Apollo 8 took that amazing photo, Earthrise, and you know, we realized the truth of who we have always been, you know, one, one human family with a common origin. And now we have a deep awareness of our shared destiny, right? And we didn't always think that way, but now this this gave us a new guidepost it gave us a new map you know we saw that the territory had changed and now we needed a new map you know as opposed to those two-dimensional you know color maps in, in classrooms around the world but we're, we're at this inflection point and what could happen here is we hopefully will make all the steps we'll go in, we'll enter into the new new human epoch we'll we'll understand our interdependence and how you everything affects everything else and we will reach an equilibrium within our planet's boundaries, within, within the constraints, the physical constraints of our, of our planet um, and the resource constraints. Um, or we'll keep going down the path we're on right now and hypernationalism and blind independence and you know, winner take all and you know, vast injustices and, and you know, basically all the systemic problems that we have right now that are, are calling, causing a lot of uh, big issues, are really getting us into a, a terrible place already. If we continue that down that path, that's where, the, that's where you have the crash, right? And so obviously we don't wanna go down that path. And so we really do need to enter into a new human epoch. We really need to change the way we do business. And what that's gonna take, uh, frankly, is for us to, to realize that we are part of something larger than ourselves. And, you know, I think, there's been a lot of evolutionary phase shifts uh, that we have as humans have experienced uh, in, in our development. I think we had, a, we had an evolutionary phase shift back in 1968 uh, at the moment of Earthrise, where humanity was given the opportunity to, to transcend and ascend beyond our, our humble beginnings and ascend to incomprehensible heights, both literally and figuratively. And I think the, the first big, big quantum leap in our evolution was when we evolved to the point where we could self-reflect, right? Where we, as a, as a, a, a living species could say, you know, I'm, 
I'm a, I'm a person. Uh, I can imagine a future different than it is right now. I could project my my conscious thought backwards a billion years, forwards a billion years. I could I could think multi generational. Uh, I I could do all these things. I think that was the first giant you know leap for for human evolution. I think we're right at the point when we need to make the next giant leap. And that is to realize that the self that we are self-reflecting on is not just an individual, but part of a larger cosmic journey, that we are connected and interdependent on, on, our, uh, on a level that we don't normally understand, that we normally don't take into our account. But that's the true reality of, of our world. It's the true reality of us as a species, as an embedded species in the, into the ecosystem of Earth. And I think when we finally embrace that truth and that reality will start to see us making real progress, real lasting multi-generational progress. Wow. That's fantastic for you to say that. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Now you've written one book, you've got another book coming out. You mentioned your other book before. Um, let's talk about your new book. Okay. What, so I actually what, have what, two books. I have, I have two new books coming out. Oh, two new books. Oh, well, blooming hell. Well, hold on, before you, st before you start that, do you remember writing your first book? I do. Okay. I, I, so I wrote a book and I, writing a book for me was one of the toughest things I've ever done. It was a real challenge. What was it like for you? So my first book was very similar to what, to what I imagine it was like for you. I, you know, I, had a, I did it the traditional way. I found a, a traditional publisher. Uh, I, you know, I got an advance. Uh, which allowed me to, you know, take the time to write the book, uh, which came with deadlines, and I had to meet deadlines. <laughs> and uh, you know, when I when I got the the, the contract, I it was an outline of a book; it wasn't a book yet. And so I love having written the orbital perspective. Writing it was not fun. That part was not fun at all. Um, with my new book, Floating in Darkness, and the same thing with the other book. The other book is a children's book called Railroad to the Moon. In both cases, I said, you know what? I'm not going to get a publisher. I'm only going to write when I feel inspired to write. Uh, and that sometimes that was at two o'clock in the morning. Sometimes that was three in the afternoon when I was at work. And I'm just going to let the creative flow come when it wants to come. And, and it, what that meant is it took, you know, well, I, I really started writing Floating in Darkness in 1991. Um, and some of it's set in the UAE, by the way. Um, wow. But it, um, when, when I really sat down and said, okay, I have a book, it's called Floating in Darkness, I'm going to really start writing this uh, in earnest. It's been about five years. Uh, it's taken about five years to write it. Um, it's going to come out in May. Um, it's, it's pretty much written already. I mean, it's completed. Um, and I love the way it came out. Um, but it came, And I love the process of writing it. It was really enjoyable to to just wait for the inspiration to come and, and write when I, it, I, it, I didn't have deadlines. I didn't say, okay, I have to write 300 words a day for the next, you know, two weeks. It was, there was none of that. It was just, whenever it comes, it comes. And the, the same with the children's book, Railroad to the Moon. So what prompted you to write a children's book? Um, thinking multi-generational <laughs> um, and, and thinking back on the inspiration that I had as a child and I, I wanted to try and inspire. It's, it's about a little girl um, who eventually goes to the, who, I don't want to give it away, but uh, it's about a little girl that, had, that, that spends some time on the moon, let's just put it that way. And I particularly wanted to inspire little girls and, and make sure that they understood that this is not something that just, you know, boys can do, that, that, that girls can do. And, and uh, when they grow up and become women, they can do anything they want and anything that's even has been traditionally a, a mostly male um, profession. So, I mean, that's not that way now, but when I was a kid, there were no female astronauts, right? Do you have daughters? 
I don't. I have I have three sons. And uh, how old are your sons? Um, the older two are twins, and they're 29, and the youngest is 26. Um, but someday I, I hope to have granddaughters. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, I'm writing it for them and all the other granddaughters and daughters and uh, around the world. And your three boys, have they ever they ever wanted to follow in your footsteps in any part of your career with military flying stuff like that any of them got excited about that uh, they, they they haven't they've they've all and, and i applaud this they all set out on their own paths and uh, um, i'm glad that they didn't feel compelled to try and follow in, in my path um, because it's because uh, they need to find the path that's right for them and i think they have good okay so just tell me about just tell me just before we finish tell me about the new, the new book i know it's taking you a long time to write okay yeah. G- give me a summary of the book so that we can get my audience over here excited and, and out there wanting to read this yeah so it's called floating in darkness the subtitle is a journey of evolution and so basically you know i've, I've had some amazing experiences in my life i fought in combat i ejected from an f-16 i lived on the bottom of the ocean i lived in space i I, I, I grew up in New York in a very turbulent time where, you know, there was a lot of, you know, gang stuff and tribalism and all this kind of stuff. Um, I, I was uh, part of the, the mutually assured destruction nuclear deterrent force during the Cold War and, and um, right on the front lines there. And so I've had a lot of really, really unique experiences. And so what I decided to do is to use uh, an autobiographical narrative that's basically the story of my life to serve as an allegory uh, for the evolution of society. Not only where we've been, but where we need to go. And so the book is written in first person present tense. So it, it will read like a novel, which is another reason why it was so fun to write is because you know I could do character developments and scene development and all that kind of, so it's, it's a very visual book. Uh, when you read it, you're gonna feel like, like you're there because um, I could talk about the smells and the tastes and the sounds and everything else. Um, and it, it so the orbital perspective, you know, d- does go pretty deep in some of the experiences that I had, like the spacewalks and everything else. Um, but floating in darkness doesn't just talk about outer space; it goes really, really deep into inner space. And so, and the, you know, there's a lot of the spiritual aspects of of reality and and what and you know, a spiritual journey. And um, you know, I really felt uh, an obligation to bring a lot of what I, I learned. Uh, through my experiences, and particularly my experiences in space, and to um, bring them back down to the surface of the earth and to try and apply them to, to problem solving and to, and to interpersonal relationships and to, and to you know, uh, achieving your goals and dreams and, and uh, a lot of those type of things. And, and like I said, it was, it, it was really, really fun to write. You've got a podcast as well. What's that called? The podcast is called The Orbital Perspective. Um, and what's interesting about that is it started out well, I had a podcast that, were, that was under development for years, and it was a few. It was about the future. So I had a, a I have a film director friend, and he and I were going to do a podcast together about what this new epoch could look like. What what could this visionary, positive, or restorative future look like, and how do we get there? And we started. We recorded a couple episodes, and then and then COVID hit, and uh, we both decided that it was the wrong time to that, that people were too raw. There was too there's the, people were worried about today, uh, you know, and they're not worried about, you know, 50 years from now. And so I started uh, not even a podcast. It was, it was just a live thing on Facebook and YouTube called Conversations Sheltered in Place, where I, I had guests on that were epidemiologists, pulmonologists. I, I had people live at, at uh, Mount Sinai Hospital in New York when, when New York was a really a hot spot. It was, 
and it was really, really well received. I had people on, you know, world-class athletes that had gotten COVID and really uh, had a really hard time with it and, and shared their lessons. And so we basically went into survival mode of, of our community, you know, what we want to communicate to help people not only navigate COVID-19, but get through it stronger, more unified than ever. And it became very popular and people really loved it. And so we decided to make it a full-blown podcast and to broaden it. And so it is the Orbital Perspective podcast. And it's, it's about looking at the coming mega trends that are coming at us and how we will able to capitalize on those and, and, and to build this positive restorative future, you know, the future that we would all want to be a part of and to, to try and nudge our trajectory and steer us uh, in the right direction when we, on this fork in the road that we're on right now. And you enjoying doing it? Love it. Yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun. It's great fun, isn't it, actually? Yeah, I've had a lot of really interesting guests. And it's uh, so, so we, we do a we, it's an hour long show and we do a, a 30 minute bonus that's not live, but we record it. And so we always, you know, during the hour conversation, there's always a topic that really we want to dive in deeper in. And, it, and it's it's really uh, every episode so far has been really powerful. And the bonus stuff um, is, is even more so. Okay, so if you're watching this, guys, make sure that you go and uh, follow that, get engaged with it, and let us know what your feedback is on that content. Okay, last last question before I finish. I know I've taken a lot of your time this evening. Um, as a fellow podcaster, have I done a good job? Awesome job. <laughs> got that, you got that fancy microphone there? What else do you need? <laughs> it's not real. No, I'm joking. <laughs> And if and if you could if you could have anybody on your show that you haven't had yet, somebody that you'd really like to spend some time with, who would it be? I mean, besides yourself? Yeah, you charmer. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, that's a you got me there. There's so it depends on the topic, right? There's so many different folks that I'd like to interview uh, on different topics. Um, so I, I guess it would depend on the on the topic. Oh, playing the fifth on that one then. Okay, fair enough. Well, look. Colonel Ron Garant, you are just an awesome human being. You're a great orator. It's been fantastic asking you questions and learning about it. And I literally, as I was listening to you, I felt I was there with you as well. So you're clearly very good at what you do. And I just want to say a massive, massive thank you for coming on the show this evening. I really do appreciate it. And uh, I hope you stay safe over in Col uh, Boulder, Colorado, which I think you're in right now. And uh, let's hope that this, uh, this disease, the vaccine comes out soon and uh, we can all be getting on with our lives and back to spending time rather than on zoom actually touching skin shaking hands and doing some high fives and some hugs yeah spencer thank you so much thank you for this uh, wonderful conversation thank you for all you're doing uh to help people out there especially during this difficult time when uh you know like you said we can't get together uh, but i think i think that this period of physical separation is an opportunity for us to come together more as a family um you know a family that cares deeply about each other and and acts that way. Um, and so I'm hoping that some good comes. Yeah, for sure, no doubt. Thank you so much. I sometimes don't know what to say when I get to the end of a podcast. I kind of like get to the finish and I try and think of what I can say to you guys when I'm talking about what it was like. But I know all of you that have just listened to that from the beginning to the end will have got as, as much out of it as I did. What a great guy sharing his stories. Just to know that I've sat and spent time with a person who is in such a small community of people. There are such a small number of people that have been to space. There's an even lesser number of people that have lived on the space station and even a lesser number 
number of people that have done spacewalks. Wow, what an incredible guy. You know, he, he, he was a teenager. He didn't do so well, had a tough upbringing. Notice that, okay? He really wanted to be an astronaut though and eventually got the chance. And to me, spending time with someone that has got stories and has seen our world from a completely different, a completely different perspective, um, it was just an absolute pleasure, like a real, real pleasure. If you want to follow more podcasts that I produce, then guess what? Okay, other amazing guests are coming, so don't hesitate to do so. Do me a favor, okay? Please subscribe to the podcast. It means so much to me when you do, okay? And leave me, you know, if you can leave a five-star rating on SoundCloud and whatnot, leave comments on iTunes, whatever it may be. More people need to hear these people tell their stories. More people need to, and you have communities where other people can listen to this kind of stuff too. So hopefully you've enjoyed this episode. I am absolutely buzzing. It was just phenomenal. And you know what? I could have spoken to him for about three or four more hours to get more out of him. What a lovely guy, Ron Garan, okay? The man who's been to space. We'll see you soon. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. I'll see you soon.